From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. There's a lot of people, they like the faux meats and they want to eat a carne asada that reminds them of the actual like beef carne asada. There are a lot of people who try to steer clear from the faux meats, so we wanted to have plenty of veggie items on the menu for them as well. We really wanted to represent different ingredients and different flavors that anybody can come and enjoy. This week on the show, producer Toby Foster visits with one of the owners of Taco Tarion in Las Vegas, Nevada. Plus, East Coast-style bagels come to Indiana, and a story from Harvest Public Media about a new farm-to-food bank program. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. First up, a story from producer Toby Foster about a recent trip to Las Vegas and a visit to a favorite food spot. Here's Toby. One of the things we've been talking about lately here at Earth Eats is the various approaches to plant-based eating, especially now that there are so many options out there that can vary greatly in quality and even more so in price. Kate has strict criteria for meat consumption, and when dining out, she usually eats vegetarian. She prefers her vegetarian entrees to be vegetable-forward and not mimicking the texture of meat. I've been vegetarian since high school, and I'm thrilled whenever I see an Impossible Burger on a menu at an airport, or even at some of the fast food chains that have added it to their menus recently, when I'm craving that sort of comfort or nostalgia. I know meat eaters who prefer a Beyond Burger because of the way it quote-unquote bleeds, vegans who seem to live off of french fries alone, and folks who can somehow seem to survive off of an occasional bowl of mixed greens and quinoa with olive oil. One of my favorite restaurants, Taco Tarion, in Las Vegas, Nevada, offers something for all types of approaches to plant-based eating, and it's why I wanted to interview them on a recent trip out west. As the name suggests, they are a vegetarian Mexican restaurant, and their tacos include carne asada and el pastor made with homemade seitan, vegetable forward tacos starring mushrooms, potatoes, hibiscus, or plantains, and a gabacho taco, which uses Beyond Beef to offer something similar to the ground beef taco you might find at Taco Bell. I got there right after they opened on an October morning where the temperature was already approaching 90 degrees to chat with one of the owners, Dan Simmons, about their approach to plant-based cuisine, why Las Vegas is so much more than just celebrity chefs selling $30 cheeseburgers, and how Taco Tarion makes it part of their mission to give back to the community. Yeah, hi, my name is Dan Simmons. I am one of the co-founders of Taco Tarion. Taco Tarion is a plant-based Mexican restaurant. And what that means is all the ingredients we use for all our food, all our drinks, everything in the whole restaurant are derived from plants. We don't use any animal products, no dairy, no eggs, no meat. We opened our first location just a little over five years ago. Uh, We just celebrated our five-year anniversary of the brand in August. Wow, that's great. And now you're up to four additional locations? Or is it five? It's five, yeah. We actually have five. We have four in Las Vegas, where we're based out of, and we have one in San Diego. Taco Tarion has four owners, Dan and his wife Regina, and another couple, Carlos and Kristen. As you might expect in a city like Las Vegas, they had a lot of collective restaurant experience, 
but it's the first time any of them has ever owned their own restaurant. We all have a uh, restaurant background. We've all had various positions in restaurants in our lifetime, but this is uh, for the four of our founding members. This is our first dive into restaurant ownership. The idea for the restaurant was born out of a trip that the four friends took to Mexico City together. On a personal note, I recently visited Mexico City myself for the first time and was blown away by all the vegan and vegetarian options. Usually when I go to a new city, I spend hours walking around, getting familiar with my surroundings, and stopping to look at the menus of every restaurant I pass. Often, as a vegetarian, my inner monologue reads something like, mm, not much there, one or two things there, veggie burger there. But walking around Mexico City was something more like, wow, this place looks even better than the place across the street. How will we decide where to go? Could we maybe fit four meals into the day? I highly recommend a trip there for anybody who loves to eat or who's looking for a little inspiration themselves. When we were coming up with the concept at the time, my wife and I, we had been talking about doing a Mexican restaurant for a little while then. It was just an idea of ours. And then we ended up partnering with our, our partners, Carlos and Kristen. And Carlos and Kristen at the time were the only vegans out of the four of us. So we took a trip to Mexico City for a little inspiration. When we were there, we tried a whole bunch of different vegan restaurants, vegan tacos, vegan, vegan food. And it was like, it all just works so well. Like just all the different seasonings and, and spices of the Mexican food just like really worked well with the, the vegan ingredients. So like a lot of mushrooms with like the different marinades and different seasonings and different spices. And we had some squash blossoms. It was mostly the vegetable type items that were just, you know, seasoned perfectly and, and great marinades, great sauces. And, and it just worked so well. It was there that we're like, you know what, like doing a plant-based or a vegan restaurant, that'll that'll set us apart from the other Mexican restaurants in town. You know, there's so many, so that'll that'll make us unique. And like we really believed that it would that that it could work and that, that we could do this. What I really appreciate about Taco Tarian is the diversity of their menu and their approaches to vegetarian food. One of the tacos I always go back to is the plantain con mole, which is a fairly simple preparation of a fried plantain, but topped with a rich and complex mole sauce and pickled red onions. But I also savor the nostalgic feeling I get from the gabacho taco that uses Beyond Meat to stand in for ground beef, served in a crispy tortilla with lettuce, tomatoes, crema, and vegan cheese. Sometimes I think that people feel like they have to pick a side when it comes to plant-based eating, the side of vegetables being vegetables, or the side of soy and pea protein standing in for various meats and cheeses. I think it's just nice to have more options and that the two approaches can work together to create exciting new flavors. For example, I generally don't really like jackfruit, but the birria platter, which uses a blend of jackfruit and beyond beef for their taco fillings served with a savory dipping sauce, is one of my favorite things on the menu. I was curious if Dan and his other co-owners thought about this as they developed their menu and what types of things customers tend to gravitate towards. When we were developing the menu, we wanted the focus to be on tacos, and that's why tacoitarian. You know, it's like a like a vegetarian but a tacoitarian. Um, so it's you know someone that loves tacos. We really wanted to have a good balance on the menu, and we wanted to have a lot of variety. There's a lot of people, a lot of customers who you know they they like the faux meats and and they want to try, they want to eat a carne asada that reminds them of you know the actual like beef carne asada. 
so we want to have variety of like like that for those customers in the in the the chicken and the fish but then there are a lot of people who try to steer clear from the faux meat so we wanted to have plenty of veggie items on the menu for them as well we really wanted to represent different ingredients and different flavors that anybody can come and enjoy can you talk about a couple that you think have been the most successful or the most popular? The most popular are definitely, and I think there's a lot of name recognition there. So it's like our carne asada, our El Pastor. Those are our best selling tacos. Again, I think, you know, people come in and they recognize, oh, carne asada. And then they, they try it out and it really does taste like carne asada. I think we get a lot of repeat customers, a lot of repeat business with that. Some of our most popular tacos might not necessarily be the best selling but they get the best feedback and there's a there's a great kind of a great following i guess for them you know we have our um our baja taco which is a beer battered avocado which you know it, it kind of replicates sort of a fried beer batter fish taco but it's with avocado very good we do a dorado taco that's just it's a fried taco with mashed potatoes in the middle very simple but very delicious people really enjoy that one as well we do one that we call a gabacho taco, which which translates to kind of like an American taco, and it's sort of like it's a take on the on a on a crunchy taco from Taco Bell, where you have like the crunchy shell, the ground beef, lettuce, shredded cheese, all that. So, I, I guess this is a, a, a pretty cliche answer, but all our all our tacos are pretty popular. But in in my opinion, those those stand out. And for the al pastor and carne asada, what is the meat substitute? For those, we use seitan. And seitan, it's basically a very concentrated protein from wheat. And then for the carne asada, we mix it with mushrooms and, and then we season it. For the, the seitan we use for the pastor, it's a different seitan. Like we don't use mushrooms for that one. For that one, we use garbanzo beans with the, with the wheat and then all the different seasonings and stuff that go into it. And so are you mixing the mushrooms or the garbanzo beans in with the wheat gluten to make the seitan? Yeah, we mix it all together. You kind of make it into a loaf. I guess you could you could compare it to like a, a meatloaf or even a loaf of bread, and then it is um, steamed in the oven. The cooking method that Dan's talking about is my favorite way to make seitan, and honestly something I wish more people knew about. When I first went vegetarian, every cookbook recommended boiling a mix of gluten flour and water in a giant pot with maybe a splash of soy sauce and a bay leaf or two, resulting in something tough and flavorless that makes you think more of wheat paste than anything edible. After a friend and coworker showed me how to make the loaf-style seitan, I never looked back. It's a really easy way to mix in a ton of flavor through herbs and spices, and you can add in ingredients like mushrooms or chickpeas, as Dan mentioned, to make something with a little more nutritional value. The texture also comes out really nicely, and though the mixing is a bit of work, it's easy enough to make a big batch and it stays good for a long time. Isa Chandra Moskowitz, who some might know for her book Veganomicon, recently put out a cookbook called Fake Meat with several recipes for this style of seitan, if you're interested in learning more. After a quick break, we'll get back to my conversation with Dan Simmons, owner of Taco Tarian in Las Vegas, Nevada.
I'm Toby Foster, and welcome back to Earth Eats. I'm speaking with Dan Simmons, co-owner of Tacotarian in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm always curious with plant-based or mostly vegetarian restaurants if the owners have a specific motivation in mind, such as animal rights or trying to reduce their carbon footprint. It's kind of across the board. Like I mentioned before, when we when we started the restaurant, my partners, they were they were the only vegans at the time. Like my, my wife and I weren't when we started. We we did switch over after that. But my partner Kristen was very big in the animal rights. She's on different boards here in town for uh, NSPCA and things like that. So for her, her main motivation was was animal rights. And then for myself, just kind of getting into the lifestyle and kind of seeing all the benefits of a vegan diet of from the animal rights to the you know to the environmental to the even to the health standpoint it it all it all resonates with me now like i I see the benefits of all three of those things and, and yeah when you tell people you're taking a trip to las vegas they usually love to share their opinions with you and i get it if you're not careful there are plenty of ways to wait in long lines spend a bunch of money and not do anything particularly fun or exciting. But one of the reasons I love to visit is that there are some excellent restaurants both on and off the Strip. It's a large and diverse city with lots of different cuisines available in everything from classic fine dining restaurants to small strip mall storefronts to modern artsy downtown eateries. I wondered what it's like to be part of that community and about some of the misconceptions of the food scene in Las Vegas. The food scene in Las Vegas is great. I mean, I guess to the person outside of the market, what they you know they just see the strip and they see a lot of celebrity chefs. And, you know, you have your Gordon Ramsays and your Wolfgang Pucks. But like, besides all those big name chefs, there's a, a whole lot of great executive chefs working in all those restaurants who are who are local, who live in Las Vegas. Their families live in Las Vegas. They're they're part of the community here. Over the last five plus years, we've seen a lot of those chefs from the strip move into the suburbs and, and away from the strip and downtown and different areas and, and open their own restaurants. In my opinion, that was the biggest evolution of the food scene here was just, you know, like all the great chefs who were running these celebrity chef restaurants on the strip started doing their own thing and, and brought a lot of talent and a lot of expertise out away from the strip. So yeah, the food scene is, is definitely is definitely great here. I was actually going to ask about how that affects, I don't know, just staffing in general, and because and, it is such a service-based town. I guess I was wondering if it makes it harder to find staffing because you have so many places that need so many people to work all the time, or if that is a benefit, which it sounds like you're kind of saying that it is. It is. I mean, we're, of course, kind of like in and out of a very weird time right now since 2020, so like it, it kind of seems like for six months, it's like, oh, there's a a lot of people out there looking for jobs and then for the next six months you can't find anybody and it's kind of bouncing around but yeah i mean the the fact that it is a service-based industry town there are a lot of people who you can find you know you can find more long-term employees i would say in this market than you know maybe a, another market where the service industry isn't as big the restaurant industry still does have a lot of turnover there are people coming and going all the time it's just a, it's just the nature of the business but I do think, yes, in Las Vegas, there's definitely a bigger pool of employees who will stay with you longer. In addition to their four locations in Las Vegas, Tacotarian recently opened a fifth location in San Diego. I was curious about some of the challenges related to scaling up a business so quickly, and particularly with opening their first location in another state. 
no business is without its challenges and, and the restaurant industry is definitely a very imperfect uh, business. So you have to just kind of, you have to kind of roll with it every day and just realize, you know, stuff's going to happen. Things are going to happen. You just have to get through all the different challenges with a, with patience and a smile. Scaling from one to five locations was definitely hard. I had mentioned before that our founding members is four of us, so it's nice having four of us members, and you know that's a that's a pretty large ownership team. I think that definitely helped in in scaling up. We opened our second location, our downtown location, which is also our largest location. We opened that about three months before, two and a half months before COVID hit. You know that was a very uncertain time for everybody and a very scary, challenging time. So you know that. Growing sort of in the middle of that was definitely challenging, but we also, you know, we were able to streamline a lot of our processes. We were able to really sit down and, and analyze the business and introduce a lot of a lot of more efficiencies into it. I do think while it was a challenging time that I, I don't want anybody to relive, we were able to get some positives out of it from a business perspective. We have our four locations in Las Vegas, and being being stationed in Las Vegas, I I don't think there's many more challenges that you know we're we're all here in Las Vegas. So um, while it is hard and it's adding more work to the plate, it is nice being local here to take care of any issues that could arise. If a staff member doesn't show up show up for work or something, one of us can easily run over there and cover. San Diego, on the other hand, was was a little more challenging in in many ways. Number one, like anytime you go to a new market, a, a different jurisdiction, a different city, a different state, there's a lot more or a lot different laws and regulations you have to learn and, and sift through. And California was definitely challenging, like just getting up to speed on all the different laws and everything that we, we have to learn and, and be familiar with. So there were definitely more growing pains there for, you know, the first six to nine months but once we got familiar with with the market and even like the ebbs and flows of business and you know like our our busy time here in las vegas might be their slow time there and vice versa once we kind of got up to speed with all that we were able to you know streamline and, and introduce all the same efficiencies out there that we that we learned in las vegas over the times so i would say you know now we've been open and San Diego a little over a year and, and, and things are cranking out there and, and it's doing very well. So I also noticed on your website you do a, a monthly special that usually the proceeds go to some sort of different organization. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and about uh, that aspect of the business? We like to give back to the community. That's very, that's very important to us. So most months of the year we have a monthly special. We might take a couple months off. When we run those, a, a portion of those proceeds will go to a charity who aligns with our values. So for instance, in September, we did a monthly special. We did a Mexican pizza, which is a take on like the Taco Bell Mexican pizza. And a portion of those proceeds went to the Maui Humane Society after the Maui fires. That Mexican pizza special was just so wildly popular that we wanted to bring it back. So we brought it back for a second month. We're doing it still in the in the month of October for um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And we are partnering with the, um, they're called the Red Foundation. And it's a local group here in town who offers, you know, women's services, mammograms, exams to people with maybe without insurance or in underserved areas of the city. Well, great. Since you mentioned Taco Bell, have you tried the Taco Bell vegan nacho cheese yet? 
I have not tried it. Um, it's getting quite a bit of attention, but I, I have not tried it yet, but I, I will. My guest was Dan Simmons, owner of Taco Tarion in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information and to see some pictures of my lunch, visit eartheats.org. Again, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, and uh, yeah, I think I'm going to get some tacos. All right, of course. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Toby Foster is a producer on our show. After a short break, we'll hear about a Midwest bagel shop serving up a taste of the East Coast. Stay with us. Welcome back to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Next up, we have a story from producer Violet Barron about a local shop offering a not-so-local experience. If you go to Colstone Square in Bloomington on a Saturday or Sunday morning, that's that strip mall off 3rd Street and done by campus, you'll see a line of people coming from the last storefront down, and they'll probably be sneaking out the door and into the parking lot. And then squeezing past the ones in line, there'll be a trail of people coming out the door, clutching brown paper bags with warm sandwiches inside. Everyone's chattering, enjoying the weekend, and eager to tear into their order. That's a common scene in bagel meccas like New York and Chicago, but until recently, not so much here in Bloomington. But now it is. That's thanks to Gable's Bagels, a new shop in town that's been basically flooded with business from the moment it opened its doors, and the experience is guided by a big personality inside the shop. Good morning, ladies. Thank you for joining us today. Have you guys been here before? Well, I'm glad one is and one not. That's even better. So I imagine she brought you in. Even better. Thank you. My name is Ed Schwartzman. I am the very proud owner of a new restaurant here in Bloomington called Gables Bagels. Now, I'm born and raised in New York City. Okay, anytime a New Yorker leaves the city, uh, usually a good barometer of how they judge a city, if they wherever they move to, whether it's Bloomington, San Antonio, doesn't matter why it's San Antonio, I have no idea. But um, they'll say, can you get good pizza and can you get good bagels? And um, a New York bagel and New York pizza is just different. As my wife keeps telling me, don't say yours are better. It's just that it's a different flavor profile or just a different way of doing things. And so I've never quite experienced New York pizza outside or East Coast pizza outside of these coasts, and I've never quite experienced a New York bagel outside of these coasts. And so um, I've been in, I've lived in Bloomington since about 2008, and um, I kind of just didn't think I'd ever get a, what I call a New York bagel. When COVID broke out, so my wife and I, we own Buffaloes, and obviously COVID affected everybody, some more than others. You know, obviously people lost their lives, which is horrific. Others lost their business, which is tragic. And uh, others had their businesses tremendously affected. And fortunately for us, that was our category that we, we sales were way down. I mean, it, it, it was just a, a downtime in the hospitality industry for obvious reasons. And so, but the trend, you know, in every, in every tragedy or bad situation, there's always opportunity. And the big thing in the restaurant industry during COVID was something called ghost kitchening. And ghost kitchening is simply a term that if you already have a, a, a commercial kitchen blessed by the health department, can you come up with another concept 
maybe unbeknownst to everybody, maybe if you have an Italian restaurant, can you make Mexican food and maybe just have it go out either on Uber Eats or you get your own delivery service. They don't even need to know that it's coming from your kitchen or they'd be amazed if they knew it was, but just a, a, a new concept. And um, unfortunately, I had a lot of time during COVID and um, I started noodling around and thinking about things. And um, I found a bakery in uh, New Jersey that, well, I first started getting samples. I said, maybe I could open up a bagel shop inside of Buffalo's. Um, we have a little storefront that wasn't being used. Maybe we could sell the bagels out of there. And I am not risk adverse, but I'm not a big risk taker. My wife is risk adverse. So, of course, I need her blessing because my marriage is far more important than selling bagels. And so um, she agreed that, all right, we're not going to open up a new store. So Ghost Kitchen was attractive. Um, and um, I started importing these bagels from New Jersey. And this place in New Jersey, your supplier, yeah. is there any limit to them? They can just ship out, you know, whatever you need? We have been to the plant, um, and uh, we are a long ways away from ever. I don't think we can max them. They make about 2 million bagels a week. So uh, um, they are designed to do exactly what um, we need, which is to uh, um, support a bagel shop that's not baking up from scratch. So what, what they're, the, the term in the industry is they're par-baking them, but they bake them within such tight controls. And I mean, they when you walk in the plant, you could see what the, the uh, humidity is, the barometric pressure, because baking is a science. It's, 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 an exa- it's, it's chemistry. And they factor in humidity, outside temperature, all the factors that go into it, which can make a bagel either too flat, too, too, too dense, too thin, et cetera, et cetera. So the controls are amazing. And uh, we've been more than thrilled with everything they send us. So it, it's working. Par-baked, according to Ed, means the bagels arrive in his kitchen having already gone through almost all of the steps in the baking process. They've been shaped, proofed, boiled, even seeded, and then baked nearly to completion. They're then frozen and shipped to the shop, where the staff finishes the process so they're freshly baked in-house. And the proof is in the pudding because the customers are just, you know, the reviews have been five-star across the board. And um, lo and behold, uh, and I was doing it out of Buffalo We made it very underlined, very difficult for people to get the bagels. You had to order the day before. You couldn't get individual bagels, minimum of a dozen. Um, you had to pay in advance online. We, only, we sold just bulk cream cheese and bulk bagels. It was no onesie twosies. And was that by design or was that just the nature of it? It was just, I, it, I was doing it by myself. And so I can't make the bagel, smear the bagel. And plus, the term we used was Trace Jackson. So under threat of death from my wife, I was not allowed to have any impact. There's supposed to be no Trace or Trace Jackson that I was even there. So when the staff came in every morning, they would not be able to tell that Ed was doing his bagels in the morning. No Trace Jackson was the, was, was, was the, the, the running joke. And so if there's not going to be a Trace that I was there, I can't be online making sandwiches. I was just baking the bagels, putting them in bags, putting the cream cheese in a tub, off you go, off you go. And um, we started doing that. We, we, we started that in, um, I'll say, the summer of 2021. And we did that for about six months. And after six months, there was a measurable buzz. I mean, the, there were people, uh, the, the Bloomington Foodies was really the first one to pick it up. Somebody posted who's got the best bagels in town. And at that point, I wasn't even advertising. I was, I was almost like, 
the uh, uh, an underground thing. Best People kept would secret. text me. Yeah. With the, is this the bagel guy? Like, I've heard you've got really good bagels. And it's, it's like, you know, having a drug dealer, but a bagel dealer. And so um, uh, I was the bagel guy, and I was uh, fulfilling orders left and right, uh, but still doing it by myself. And they were long days because I'm getting up early and then running the chicken wing business. Um, and so after a, a lot of consideration uh, and um, uh, giving it some deep thought, my wife and I decided that we were going to open up a store. And um, we found the location, which had its you know, pros and cons, like any location. Uh, the thing that made it extremely attractive was there was almost unlimited parking. The thing that made it unattractive was it was small. Uh, it did not have a back door for delivery. There is a back door, but it leads to a deck. And so all deliveries go through the front, which I'm not a big fan of. You know, you'll be sitting in the store and a, and a delivery driver comes in and it just is what it is. I just wish, wish it wasn't that way, but you chaotic. can't have everything. Well, you're kind of bringing New York in there too, Correct. right? The, the, yeah. the tumult, the chaos, yeah. 100%. You just seen a delivery truck in the middle of the bike lane and you've got it. <laughs> 100%, Violet. 100%. So it's funny because you are touching on something. So the vibe, the energy is a lot of chaos, a lot of noise. We crank the music up. Uh, people seem to like it. And the feedback has been great. We signed the lease in January, uh, January 1st of 2022 is uh, the first day we took over uh, the space. And by about January 5th, I was convinced I made an amazing mistake that I'm in over my head. This wasn't going to work. But by about February 15th, it's like, you know what? I think I could do this. Because even though my wife and I, we, even though we already have a restaurant, we've never opened one. So when we took over Buffalo's, we just had to cobbled together the money. My wife was my wife was already the general manager, so there was no decisions that had to be made except can we get the money together? We knew how much money was going down to the bottom line, et cetera. With the bagel shop, every decision has to be made. What kind of chairs? What what kind of uh you know what what colors are the walls? You know, what oven do you want? What every what, what napkins? Every single decision had to be made. And that's not fun. I don't like making a lot of decisions, but I forced myself to do so. And um, uh, we, uh, my goal was to be open by graduation, which is in May. And we, we took over January 1st. Well, May came and went, and uh, it was not to be. We wound up opening August 1st. It took us a lot longer than I had hoped. Um, and uh, we opened very quietly because we weren't quite ready. But I finally said, you know what? We just gotta do it. Do the dis- thing. Exactly. Start start disappointing people, but just get the register ringing and let's figure it out. Because you can't figure everything out on the drawing board. You've got to literally start making mistakes, and you learn, and you lose, and you make mistakes. And so we opened August first, and um, we didn't even really announce it. And then again on Facebook, I think they're open. We never had a grand opening flyer or anything. We never cut a ribbon. We never brought the chamber. I still think I want to do that, which is kind of dumb now. We're open seven months. But um, uh, but it, the, the response from the community has been overwhelming. Well, the truth is, as much as we like seeing it, we're working on ways to speed that up. And I think we are getting a lot better um, where, you know, it might be like a five to seven minute, uh, seven to ten. But, you know, in the beginning, it was 20 to 30 minutes. So I was like, I don't care how good our bagels are and all our cream cheese are made in-house. I said, you know, they're not going to wait that long. So we're working on processes. We're getting more efficient every day. Um, we're 
looking, and I say looking, we're not hardcore looking, but we are looking at a second location. And the main reason I'm looking for a second location is I want a bigger kitchen so that we could do things to support both spaces. Because the kitchen we have in there, it's real small. I mean, I probably, in hindsight, you know, I, t- I talked about learning lessons. One of them was I wish we could do it again because I would have made the kitchen bigger, I would have made the space where the staff works bigger. Um, I gave too much space to the customer, but of course, we revere the customer. I want them to be comfortable. Um, so you live and learn. You live and right. learn. Is the majority of the business through that storefront now, or are you still doing orders? Uh, you mentioned you had a, what, 10 dozen bagel order coming up. Right. right. Well, like this morning we did, we fed the ROTC. Uh, it might have been 20 dozen. Um, if I had my druthers, I would rather only do big bulk orders. I would rather, uh, you said, all right, Ed, we have a function. I'm feeding 400 people. Great, Violet, I'll bring you know, 600 bagels, piping hot, fresh out of the oven, tubs of cream cheese, locks, platters if you want, fruit bowls. That is still going to be easier than making 600 individual sandwiches or even 100 individual sandwiches. So um, we prefer the bulk orders, but unfortunately, we don't always get to decide, you know, uh, how we're going to get to pay the bills, uh, you know, each month. So I would say... The onesie twosies, people walking in and getting a breakfast sandwich, people walking in and getting a bagel with locks represents um, 85% of the business and 15 to 20% is the bulk orders. But we're doing more and more with that every day. Um, I have a couple of fraternities and sororities where we deliver them once a week, Um, a couple of doctor's offices once a week, like a route. And that to me is really, I don't want to walk away or poo-poo the onesie twosies, but that's good business where it's just easy. And easy is, as you get older, <laughs> easy is good. Easy is good. Yeah, yeah that's interesting because it kind of goes back to the ghost kitchen, right? Like that was always a good model. Correct. But A, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I got greedy, but I realized that if I did spend some money um, and put more behind it, that there was that there was more to it. And the community has responded. So I was, turns out I was right, which is nice um, because I'm not, you know, that's very seldom happens. But um, the easier model would have been to stick to what I was doing. Um, But then it it was more of a hobby than a a revenue stream. And probably if I did the math, we probably broke even, you know, and and if I figured out how many hours I spent doing it, you know, I, I basically just bought myself a job when I was doing the ghost kitchening. So now it's it's a real thing. We have a real business. We're employing 15 people. We're looking at maybe a second store. Um, there's other people from other communities who are talking about possibly opening up and copying our model, which is very flattering. Um, so we'll see where it goes. I, I you know, I'd, one day at a time. Right now, I just have that one store. If I if I go to my uh, grave with just one bagel store. I'm okay. I'm content with that. But if I go to my grave with 50 stores, I'm content with that too. People might be seeing you as a model now. Do you think you'll do consulting or Why, something? Why? Thank you very much. Don't <laughs> well, mind if you I do. mentioned that. <laughs> I'm not sure what our next move is. The good news is that we have options, and um, uh, even if we do nothing, that's an option. But um, we're very anxious to add more items to our menu. But with our small kitchen, we're very limited, and so as a result. I know I need a bigger kitchen, so I could either, A, get what's called a commissary kitchen and just make stuff out of the kitchen and then bring it into the shop. Not so different from the Buffaloes, right? Well, no. Well, 
I mean, like when you were making it there. Correct. Well, but but we we made it there and sold it there. So now I'm saying, okay, I want more stuff in my kitchen. At, I want more items to sell at uh, Gables Bagels. Well, we're, I can't. I just don't have the capacity to make it or store it. I'm very limited in my freezer space, refrigeration space. So I need a second kitchen. Well, what if that second kitchen is attached to a storefront? So now not only are we making stuff there, we're generating revenue there. So these are all things I, I think about. And I if I see a for lease sign, I look and then I got to just try to talk myself out of it. Slow down, slow down. It's okay. Just do what you're doing. Maybe think in a, you know, in a year, you know. So it's exci- it's very exciting to think about. But it's also, I got to, I, I think, um, uh, what's the phrase? Discretion is the better part of valor. So in, in this case, I'm going to try to be, you know, go slow and in the worst case, do nothing for another six months. But don't be surprised if next week you, you read that we're opening up a store, you know, on campus. But we'll see. We'll see. I don't know. We'll see what the future holds. Who are your primary customers? Is it different in the storefront versus the order? Is there like one group that really comes out or everybody? I would say everybody. Uh, certainly the student body has been, you know, crazy for the bagels, particularly the East Coast kids. Um, because they grew up on this on this flavor profile. And not only are they crazy about it, they bring their parents in. And the parents, of course, I say, is your first time here? Yes. And they say, my son has been raving about your, your place, but I'm a little skeptical. And I get, I say, hey, this is how I am walking into any bagel shop or pizza shop anywhere. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to be the typical New Yorker, but I can't believe these bagels or this pizza is going to be any good. And then they try it. So certainly the students represent a strong uh, percentage, but... The locals and then um, groups, all kinds of groups, as I mentioned before, the the hospital, surgery center, uh, doctor's offices, insurance agencies, fraternities, sororities, anybody. Well, the other nice thing is because of what we're doing and the words getting out, it's kind of a new thought for people because it used to be, well, I'm going to a meeting, I'll bring donuts. Well, now, wait a minute. Bagels are just, I think, better. It's It's more of a wow, in my humble opinion. And so uh, I would say it's a cross-section of everybody, but probably the students lead the way. You know, you were saying, like, you can't really replace yourself, right? You're a big part of the store, and everybody, when I come in, when my friends go in, they say, you know, it's the the guy. You know, he's such a big part of the experience, right? Because you're chatting everyone up, you know, you're making jokes and stuff. Do you think that's a sort of big part of the model for you? Well, you know, the old phrase, um, you know, treat others like you'd want to be treated, um, and I enjoy that. Now, not everybody does, and obviously, I, hopefully I've learned enough to read people. If I greet them and smile and you know, they just keep their head down and just give me a bagel, fine. I'll probably try one time to crack that veneer. Cause, uh, but most people, and I mean the majority of people come in our place, first of all, the music is pumping. It, there's just a vibe. In fact, if going back to those reviews, read some of those reviews, they comment on the vibe and the energy in the place, and that's not just me, and I'm also always not there. I mean, our staff plays the role pretty, I think, very well. So um, I th- we think it's important. It seems to work for us. And it also, uh, it's a much better way to pass the day. Being friendly, outgoing, getting to know your customers. I can't tell you uh, the amount of people who walk in now and we know their name. And boy, does that feel good. I know uh, they like it. We like it because, you know, we ask for your name. We take your order. But if you walk through the door and we yell your name, Violet, welcome uh, back. Good to yeah. see you. You got and, regulars. Yeah, oh, yeah. and we do. Oh, boy, do we ever. And I and that is, the, to me, the biggest compliment of all 
is when people come back again and again and again. So not only do they like us, but we're, we're putting out a consistent product that they know they're not going to be disappointed. And um, it's, you know, to me, serving others is, an, we might not be solving, uh, you know, curing cancer, but I think what we're doing matters. I think, you know, extending a smile to somebody, asking them where they're from, engaging, connecting with them, connecting on some level. Um, and to me, food does that. And, you know, particularly bagels, and particularly if I, I love asking where they're from, if they're from, and they say New York, Philadelphia, New Jersey, and it's their first time in, you better believe I'm walking over to their table if they're eating in. So how'd we do? And I mean, they're, usually they've got cream cheese coming out of the side of their mouth, and they're just nodding their head and going, dude. Speechless, yeah. yeah. I can't believe it. Chewing on Gable's bagels, I get it. When I moved to the Midwest from Brooklyn four years ago, I knew I would be compromising on some New York favorites. What makes a New York bagel, or in this case Jersey, I guess, is something in the texture and flavor. They're big, for one. Fluffy, but also chewy. Soft but substantial, maybe. They have a good moisture content, and if you wrap them in a plastic bag, they'll coat the inside with humid drops. They're not super sweet, but you can taste the gluten as you bite down. What struck me about bagels, like all New York goods, is that they're wrapped in the feeling of being in New York. Crowds, sounds, smells, good and bad together. It's a tough place to live despite its pleasures, even for a native like me. I do think Gables gets the formula just about right. Maybe something in the feeling of being in that chaotic shop helps, that sensory overlap. The personality, the vibe, it's an experience. Okay, so the Jewish word is mitzvah, and that means to do a good thing for somebody, do a mitzvah. And I cannot tell you how many customers have come in and they've tried that wafer spread, and we make it all in-house, they've tried our smoked salmon spread, they tr- we make all our spreads in-house, and they literally say, Ed, you are doing a mitzvah for the community. And maybe I am, I'm not trying to you know, make it out to be too much, but it feels good to hear. Violet Barron is a producer for our show and also for WFIU's Interstates. Violet is also the local on-air announcer for All Things Considered weekday evenings on WFIU in Bloomington. Over 100 billion pounds of food goes to waste every year in America. In kitchens, at grocery stores, and on farms. Now, a federally funded program is connecting local farmers and food pantries in an effort to cut down on food waste. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Farm to Food Bank is now in 28 states, including Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, Michigan, and Indiana. But as Harvest Public Media contributor Peter Medlin reports, funding for the program depends on Congress and what gets included in the next farm bill. I'm walking through the production hall at the Northern Illinois Food Bank, about an hour west of Chicago. In front of me, volunteers are packing up meals. Right now, we're working really hard on our holiday meal box program. Jacob Lamplow is the Food Bank's interim director of food procurement. 
Over the past few years, the Northern Illinois Food Bank has been able to provide a lot more local produce to residents, 400,000 pounds of food that otherwise would have nowhere to go. Peaches are the big one, we've had apples, and then we've even had things like squash, a bunch of different peppers. It's food farmers can't sell to supermarkets because it has a blemish, is a weird shape, or just not the right size. It's good food, it tastes the same, but it often rots away on farms because there's no market for them. Nationwide, the Farm to Food Bank program has moved millions of pounds of surplus food. It was authorized through the 2018 Farm Bill, and last year the USDA handed out more than $3 million to state agencies for Farm to Food Bank projects. Most states in the Midwest are taking part, including Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Missouri, and Michigan. Stacey Dean, Deputy Undersecretary for the USDA's Food and Nutrition Services, says they also hope to spark interest for states that aren't participating yet, such as Kansas, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. I can't speak to the whys, but these are the breadbaskets of our country. And if they're leaving food, available food, unharvested that we could be using to feed vulnerable families, then let's work together to figure out a path forward. The Farm to Food Bank program is funded through the Farm Bill, which comes up for reauthorization every five years. Dean says this fall, funding briefly expired before the Farm Bill was extended for another year. Well, I think Farm to Food Bank was particularly vulnerable. And funding in the next Farm Bill isn't guaranteed. In Illinois, officials wanted stability for the program. So earlier this year, Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a law establishing state funding that makes Illinois pretty unique among farm-to-food bank states. Regalis Gavuzo is with the Illinois Farm Bureau, and she says the state funding means the program will continue no matter what happens with the farm bill. And she says that allows farmers to feel more stable and diversify their products. Maybe we were afraid to grow broccoli because we didn't know the market was there or what happens if we can't move all of that or it's just not as pretty. Now we've created the secondary market to recover some of those potential losses. While farmers aren't paid full price for the food, they're able to cover their costs, including labor and transportation, and they don't have to see their food go to waste. We had a farm last week that was going to get hit by the frost with apples. We moved almost 10,000 pounds of apples off of their trees and it covered their labor. But that product would have just had nowhere to go if it hadn't been for this project. Rendleman Orchards is one of more than a dozen farms participating in Illinois' program. Wayne Searles is the owner and manager of the orchards in far southern Illinois. And he says, with the help of other local farms, they sent out about a dozen semi-truck loads of produce this year. It's a win-win situation, not just for the customers of the food bank, but also for the farmers themselves. Now he knows a vegetable or fruit with a blemish won't get dumped. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Peter Medlin. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Before we go, I want to make sure that Earth Eats listeners know about Interstates. It's a radio show and podcast hosted and produced by my friend and colleague, Alex Chambers. It's a weekly arts and culture show. I've been on Interstates before. I did a story about a kid I know who makes comics. 
and I interviewed Nate Powell, who's a famous cartoonist and graphic novelist who lives right here in Bloomington. And Alex made a four-part series about the time my cat Rita got lost, which, of course, ends up being about much more than a lost cat. It's called The Third Time Rita Left. You can find all four chapters on their podcast feed. Just search for Interstates, WFIU, wherever you listen to podcasts. And here's a promotional spot for the show, put together by producer Avi Forrest in collaboration with Alex. I hope you'll check it out. I can't believe I'm asking this, but is love real? Who's Dynamo? Who's Flexo? Oh, so you want to make money. Why was I training these writers to be critics? What are we going to do? Like, people are so mad. Do you have the rights? I mean, was this, like, fun for you? How do we balance making music versus making noise? Who is the ultimate arbiter of human relations? Is it like a keyboard that you play? The answer's on Interstates, Sundays at noon on WFIU or whenever you want as a podcast. If holiday cookie baking is part of your tradition, we've got some great ideas on our YouTube channel. From traditional thumbprints to gluten-free forgotten cookie meringues and an Earl Grey twist on a classic Russian tea cake, we've got buttery shortbread in a variety of shapes and flavors for an elegant and festive cookie tray. The videos are shot in my home kitchen and I walk through all of the steps. But don't worry, they are simple recipes and you can find them all by searching for Earth Eats on YouTube. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, the Earth Eats Digest. You can find a link to sign up for that at eartheats.org. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alexis Carvajal, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Dan Simmons and everyone at Taco Tarion, Ed Schwartzman, and everyone at Gables Bagels. Earth Eats is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Mm-hmm.